Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Hi, welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. If you're a regular Politics Guys listener, you've probably heard me ask if you could take a minute to review and rate our podcast on iTunes. Maybe you've wondered why we keep on asking. I want to take just a minute to explain why this matters so much. iTunes uses reviews and ratings to rank podcasts. The more reviews and ratings, the higher the ranking. And the higher a podcast is ranked, the more people see it and end up subscribing. So why do subscribers matter? Well, first and foremost, Jay and I really want to make a difference to as many people as possible. We started the Politics Guys because we thought that people would really like to hear reasonable, well-informed debate on important political issues instead of all the screaming and yelling that's so common these days. We'd like to believe that what we do makes a difference, even if it's just at the margins, and the more people we can reach, the more of a difference we can make. Second, we've grown to the point where we're starting to feel a bit of a financial pinch for costs associated with the show. When you've only got a few dozen or even really a few hundred listeners, things like web hosting aren't a factor. But we're well past that point now. The problem is we're at kind of an awkward teen phase in our growth, if you will. Uh, Big enough where we're feeling that financial bite, but not really big enough where we're able to attract sponsors to help defray these costs. So if you haven't had a minute to head over to iTunes to rate the show and write a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could. You can find the iTunes link on our webpage, politicsguys.com. That's politicsguys, one word, dot com. And if you have left a rating and a review already, thanks. We really appreciate your support. And now, on to this week's show. Our top story this week is a bizarre outbreak of bipartisanship. On Friday, Congress approved a budget for fiscal year 2016, which began on October 1st of this year. Fiscal years are weird like that. The $1.8 trillion 2009-page bill, which was quickly signed into law by President Obama, passed with sizable margins, 316 to 113 in the House and 65 to 33 in the Senate. So, Jay, what do you think about this? Is there a a new spirit of cooperation in the air, or what's going on here? Well, you know, I think we've talked about this a ton of times. Uh, The Republicans need to be able to govern, and I think they're realizing that uh, that's that's what they need to do, uh, and I think I think we're we're seeing that um, <clears throat> the the tactic of uh, you know uh, brinksmanship uh, budget brinksmanship I think hasn't worked in the past, um, and and I think there have been some some concessions on the the other side. Obama has has backed off, and I think he's realized he doesn't have maybe all the the Democrat votes as as he would like, and I would I would think there you know there might be sort of a funny and you would be able to do the research on this uh, better than I could. But I'm wondering when you get to this phase of a presidency, sort of the, the lame duck presidency in the last two years, um, d- does there sort of become a, a more bipartisan spirit in Congress to the extent that uh, the other party doesn't, doesn't necessarily feel uh, bound to the president's agenda. Uh, they know he's not going to be there anymore. Uh, so they're more, more free agents, if you will. Right. Uh, now that that may well change when you get a nominee and you're actually in campaigning in 
the, the real political season. Um, yeah, pretty clearly. But my sense point. is there, there's there's something there's something there where, uh, uh, as a president, uh, sort of his term comes towards an end, he he naturally there's sort of a wane in in power and influence and sort of more independence among that uh, that president's party. Yeah, I think uh, certainly a lot of people are looking past President Obama at this point. President Obama might be looking past his presidency at this point. He's now on coming on, you know, uh, outdoor survival show, something we'll maybe talk about a little bit later in the podcast. But definitely, I think your point about Republicans feeling that they really need to demonstrate that they can govern, they're not they're not just the party of no, especially coming to these elections, I think is pretty important. Now, still, there were a lot of people who voted against this budget. I think uh, a number of Republicans were upset, number one, that it actually increases spending. And if you listen to the Committee for a Responsible Budget, they will tell you that uh, this deal will add around $2 trillion to the debt over the next 20 years. Although, Honestly, budget projections for 20 years in the past are pretty much, you know, toilet paper. They're not worth a whole lot, uh, but right. still. And, and, amortized, and amortized over 20 years is, is less less right. of a concern, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that's pretty clear is it's easier to agree when there's more money to go around. Uh, it's when things are getting tighter where you have more disagreements. But but again, there were some there were some concerns. Oh, actually, actually I, disagree, I disagree with you on that. OK. Uh, but but no, I, I think it's much easier to uh, to cut a budget. Uh, it's easier for Republicans to make the, those arguments uh, when you're in a, a, a downtime, when you, there simply isn't enough money to go around. And you can say, hey, look, somebody's got to take a haircut here. Uh, we're not going to make it. Um, there is sort of, yeah, when there is money to go around, everybody's he's happy. And I suppose it's easy to, um, I don't know but if it's easier to make a deal because, I, you know, when there's more money, more people want it. Um, but uh, but I digress. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I was going to say that uh, some conservative supporters uh, of uh, tighter immigration rules are really disappointed by this uh, because, for one thing, the legislation uh, really expands what's called the H-2B temporary visa program. And this is a really big deal for uh, some of the Main Street business-oriented Republicans like people like Speaker Paul Ryan, and something that more of the more conservative Freedom Caucus type Republicans are not very fond of. And so uh, this was kind of a sticking point, which is probably why a number of conservatives voted against it, not just that, but of course it does raise spending by something like $66 billion. And so now $66 billion isn't that much, um, but uh, at least in... Certainly, in, in, certainly compared to <clears throat> the situations we've had in this during this presidency. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for the example, the, the first Obama budget uh, and and the spending when in that those that first biennium was was something of adding an additional trillion right then immediately. Right. Um, yeah, trillion. Uh, no, I think deal. it's curious that again, most of the, the conservative complaints have come on the immigration issue uh, rather than the the fiscal part of it. And one other point I'll make on this is that uh, it also put in a, the budget put in a provision to end the ban on crude oil exports, which has actually been in place for around 40 years. Uh, and this ban is is something that essentially is a relic of our what I would call entirely misguided response to the 1973 OPEC oil embargo. The idea sure. that uh, the idea that not exporting oil was going to do anything to the the price of oil or to energy security turned out to be completely wrong-headed, but I think it was just kind of a knee-jerk reaction, and it's a good thing, I think, that we're done with that. 
That's and that's a very very free market thing for you to say, and I, I, I I'm a very that. I think, I'm, I'm a very no, free market I, I, guy. I, agree. I think I think that's good. And now that, and especially because we are now a uh, uh, a much bigger oil producer than we were just ten years ago. Thanks to uh, fracking. Do do yeah. Thanks to fracking. Um, and I know there are a lot of people, particularly on the left, who don't care for fracking. Uh, but uh, look, it's it's put us <clears throat> uh, back uh, back in the game as a major producer. And um, you know, the more we produce, the more we export. Uh, that's that's good for our country, both from just a, a, G, a, a GNP standpoint, and also from a security standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so yeah, I think overall, I, I'm pretty happy with this. It's certainly a positive sign. And, uh, and going forward, it'd be nice to think that we can build on this sort of thing. But I think, I don't know, I, I'm not that necessarily optimistic about that sort of thing, but we shall see. So, Well, and you should point out that there's, this is also follows up on the, what we talked about last week, the Obama uh, revamp of No Child Left Behind, which, which received a good deal of, yeah, of Republican absolutely. support also. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and likewise, for a, lot, for a lot of reasons, because there's some good conservative stuff in there about turning power and uh, back over to the states and, and so forth. Um, so, no, I, I, you know, I, I'm not, yeah, it's not that we've entered the new golden age or something, but I, for all the people who, who were saying the system is broken and, and so forth, yeah. um, no, it's not broken. It might not always work as quickly or as efficiently as you want, but uh, it, it sorts itself out eventually. Sure. The, the doom saying may, uh, may get people to click and may uh, sell, I was going to say sell newspapers. Geez, that sounds really 20th century of me. But in any case, it, it may get viewers. But I, when push comes to shove, I think we really can still get things done. And that's a, that's a good thing. And it's really nice to lead our podcast with something positive like that. So, for Christmas. Yeah, for Christmas. <clears throat> it's absolutely. A spirit. Definitely. Yes. Now, moving to something uh, uh, less positive, on Tuesday, Republican President presidential hopefuls met in fabulous Las Vegas for their fifth debate, uh, where frontrunner Donald Trump came under fire from Jeb Bush, who seems to be pretty much the only candidate desperate enough to, ta- uh, to attack Trump. Though, honestly, at this point, it's hard to imagine anything resuscitating Bush's campaign. Uh, more notable to me, at least, was the lack of fireworks between Trump and Ted Cruz, who's taken a lead over Trump in Iowa, which is the site of the first presidential nominating contest. Now, Cruz did engage in some uh, heated exchanges with the new kind of GOP establishment favorite, Marco Rubio, on the, Im- on the issue of immigration. Now, Rubio, who many conservatives eh, don't really trust so much because of his previous support for immigration reform, argued that Cruz has also been a supporter of reform in the past. So uh, what do you think? Does this, does this debate change anything in your mind, Jay? No, and I think it's, it's, it's not surprising if you step back and think about it. Um, Cruz is taking the the position and the assumption, and I think he's right for reasons we'll talk about uh, at some other point. <clears throat> that look, eventually Trump will fade. Uh, this too shall pass. So it's a matter of of who is going to get the uh, the mantle of the, for lack of a better word, what we we'll call establishment. Though again, to, to to argue that Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio both competing for the establishment uh, label is is something that you people wouldn't have predicted. Uh, a nope. year or two years ago, definitely not. Um, they were both, you know, very much uh, Tea Party favorites, and <clears throat> out, out, you know, it, it, at least before outside the mainstream. Um, so I, I get it. Why? Uh, why? I think the Cruz strategy is: look, I'm just going to let Trump 
uh, fade on his own. I don't need to attack him. I don't need to start a fight with him. Um, I'll just make sure that when he fades, I'm the 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 next go to guy. Right now, um, I, I think and, we... and and the likewise the Bush strategy because there's a strategy he gets so far behind. Yeah, uh, I think he's got to go after Trump because that's going to get him attention. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that Rubio mm-hmm. made some reasonable points about Cruz's record on immigration. Uh, Cruz did was at least not a supporter of amnesty, but he was more of a supporter of uh, some sort of legalized status of some sort that was short of citizenship a few years ago. Of course, running for president changes a lot of things, and I think Trump really changed a lot of things with how quickly his so uh, uh, violently uh, anti-immigration stance has caught on with the electorate. So my my sense would be as if uh, as a nominee, Cruz or Rubio wouldn't be nearly as anti-immigrant as Trump, though it would be really difficult, I suppose, to be as anti-immigrant as Trump, actually. So, But one thing that really kind of disturbs me and it's disturbed me from all of these debates is what I guess I would call the Trumpification of the whole process. You know, you have you have someone like Chris Christie who's screaming about how he shoot Russian planes out of the air, even if it meant World War III, and John Kasich, who apparently wants to march into Syria on his own with a 50 cal strapped to his back or something like that. I mean, it's become a sense where the only way you can get headlines over someone like Trump is to say the most ridiculous, inflammatory things. And it's it's really sad to see someone, especially who I think is, is as level-headed, as reasonable, or at least has been in the past, like a John Kasich, having to stoop to this sort of desperate ploy to get media attention. It's really kind of a sad thing, I think. Well, I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say whether it's a Trumpification. I, I suppose, I suppose it is. And maybe he's following along the same, uh, uh, the same track as, as Bush of, Hey, if I go after Trump, that, uh, that puts me in the headlines <clears throat> uh, as, as, because I think there's a lot of folks in the, uh, again, we'll we'll call it establishment for lack of a better word. Uh, looking for a Trump alternative. Um, so if you can go out and be the hey, I'm the guy who's going to take on Donald Trump. Uh, maybe you score some points there. Yeah. Uh, and even if you don't score points, well, at least you get your name in the paper, and uh, at least the the story is, uh, you know, Kasich or Christie takes on Trump, uh, as opposed to. Uh, uh, case it performs adequately at debate. Right. <laughs> that well, sort of thing. I think it's more of a they're, they're they're still not taking on Trump except for except for Bush, but it's more they're trying to out Trump Trump on certain things because everyone seems almost everyone seems afraid of Trump because how the way he shoots back and and the way he seems to hit his mark so often on these things and so uh, like I said when you get to a point where Rand Paul seems like the sane sensible person that's when you gotta gotta take stock and say well well what's going on here you know uh, but I think in the end though again that you're right Trump will fade uh, something we'll be we'll be talking about at some point in a in our first actual ask the politics guys episode which is coming out next week uh there are a lot of reasons why he will fade and i think when he does fade the republican nominee will be uh a a non-insane person and i'm looking forward to that yeah yeah okay moving on will be proven right even though we were proven wrong because during when the trump candidacy was announced i think both of us 
uh, said, oh, yeah, he's going to fade and predicted, predicted he would more or less fade in like, you know, a couple weeks to a month or two. <laughs> but, we may have overestimated the sanity yes. of GOP primary voters. So that's uh, well, and again, I, I will put the asterisks there with GOP primary voters because no one, none of them have actually voted yet. Right. And we uh, we don't really know who these Trumpians are. But uh, good point. Good point. We'll see who shows up. Definitely. OK, moving <clears throat> on. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve announced that it would raise short term interest rates by 0.25%, which is the first interest rate interest rate hike in over nine years. Now, the expectation is that the central bank will keep on raising rates every three months or so until short-term rates are at around 1.5% a year from now. So, what do you think, Jay? Was this a was this a good move by the Fed? Um, you know, a lot of people are going to complain, and <clears throat> but but yes, I think it's a good move. And, and uh, just just because and and. We've we've said this numerous times. We are not actual licensed economists uh, or, or anything like that. But there is there is a danger of 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 when you have this low of inflation for this long, uh, or this low of, of interest rates for so long that that you create a state where you can get a inflationary bubbles, uh, and and that's that would be bad for the economy. Um, it's and it's sort of it's sort of like again, uh, free money is almost like a drug, and you kind of have to wean people off of it a little bit, right? And now, uh, and I think you can you can probably look and say that the markets weren't were, were having a little bit of withdrawal symptoms uh, these past few days, but but they've I think they've sort of factored that in, yeah. If you know what I mean, yeah. The response hasn't been that great because the Fed has been doing a really good job at signaling that they were going to do this sort of thing. And right. and uh, another point to make is that one of the primary tools that the Fed has to deal with an economic downturn is to lower interest rates. And when they're already at essentially zero, they've been around 0.25 percent actually, which is pretty as close to zero as you're likely to get that then that the fed doesn't have that tool in its arsenal if something should happen and so that's part of it they want to give themselves some wiggle room there and, and another part of it is that you know the concern about inflation although we really haven't seen really much of an indication of that uh, and it's also i think uh, an indication that, that the fed feels that we have had enough of an economic recovery that the economy can stand a little more on its own now I'm a little more skeptical about that than perhaps you would be, but I think overall it makes it makes sense to slowly start doing this. Another point is that uh, it's better to kind of do this slowly in stages than all of a sudden to do it all at once and risk who knows what. So I think right. no, this I is think probably I mean, the, a, the example of of the the wrong way to do it uh, would have been back in the the, the Carter administration and. The wrong way uh, to do just about everything, an example of that, right. I think, oh, you would find the in the Fed Carter chairman, administration. Uh, then was the real tall guy. Oh, yeah, Paul Volcker, you think? No. Yes, yes, uh, not Greenspan. But, but yes, there was, there was dramatic and, and quick interest rate, rate hikes to, to uh, deal with uh, the inflation that uh, the country was suffering from in the mid through late 70s. And, and it resulted in, you know, sort of some really crazy uh, situations where I mean people were buying houses with twenty uh, percent interest uh, mortgages yeah. and things would be unheard of now. Right. Uh, thankfully. Yeah. Um, so so I mean and and again this to some extent what Volcker did was was sort of in retrospect the right medicine. Uh, it was perhaps administered too aggressively. Right. 
Right. One other thing I wanted to mention, or at least I thought this was interesting, is that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the uh, largest bank in the U.S., uh, right after the Fed's announcement, they they made an announcement that they would be raising their prime rate on loans to 3.5 percent. But they said they would not be increasing the rate they pay on deposits. So J.P. Morgan Chase is able to use this to get a little extra profit out of that. Uh, I think Wells Fargo and Bank of America also did the same thing. So it's good to see that our financial institutions are, are you know, taking care of themselves and because they're so very important. I, I love our Well, and, and but again, there's a there's a um, give and take on that, too, that if, if they don't raise their rates on deposits, uh, people find other places to put their money, as as many, many, many people have. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's my I mean, point. A savings account, I mean, or, or even CDs, uh, you know, you, you very much risked, it was essentially a losing venture. Um, and particularly with, with the danger of, of, uh, inflation sort of always looming. Right. Uh, if you're locked into some sort of longer term CD at lower rate and that kind of thing, it was, it was a, a danger. So, um, look, other, other banks are going to deal with that and they're going to have to get competitive, uh, when they want to get, um, uh, more deposits. So. Yeah, that would that would certainly certainly be nice. Anyway, oh, okay. Uh, moving on. I wanted there was a boring story. economics. Yeah, but, boring economics. Boring but important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, a story that caught a lot of people's eyes uh, this this week. I think at least me certainly. On Thursday, FBI agents arrested Turing Pharmaceutical CEO Martin Shkreli for Shkreli. I think it's Shkreli. 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 It's, it's fun, fun to say, say isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, arrested him for securities fraud and wire fraud. They also arrested his attorney. Um, now, the, the 32-year-old CEO, which is, God, awfully young to be a CEO, or actually he's right. a former CEO. What the hell CEO. are we doing at 32? Uh, yeah. Yeah, certainly not that. Uh, but he's actually now a former CEO. He resigned his position after the arrest. I think he was kind of forced to resign. But he became, I'm sure you recall, our listeners will recall, he became the focus of some serious hatred earlier this year when his company acquired the rights to Daraprim, a drug used to treat toxoplasmosis, and they raised the price from thirteen fifty a pill to seven hundred and fifty dollars a pill. Right, that's a big hike. Yeah, and and it wasn't just that they raised the price; it's that he was just such an insufferable giant ass about it. Right. Apparently, he's just a he's a horrible guy. Uh, he's uh, he's a really unlikable sort of person. But to me, and I think the reason why this story is important to me is not the story of American greed or something like that, which just kind of makes me roll my eyes, basically. But I think it's a story about how we price drugs in this country. I mean, he was just making a smart business move. If you can raise the price of something to whatever the market will bear, well, you raise that price. And the idea of expecting that your conscience or God or something else will make you be good, I think is just ridiculous. That's not how markets work. And so to me, the problem is not with this jackass. The problem is uh, how we have a system of pharmaceutical drug pricing that is fundamentally broken in this country. So to me, it's a market failure problem. Uh, I, want, we're, I mean, we are the only developed country that lets drug makers set their own prices. Uh, and on most uh, in all other developed countries, they have a system for dealing with this. Uh, you, the UK has a... Has a uh, place they call it the National Institute for Clinical Evaluation or NICE for short which is an interesting acronym where mm. they basically decide on well we want to we want to make sure that the drug companies can make a reasonable profit but we understand that the market for pharmaceuticals is fundamentally anti-competitive and so therefore they treat them essentially like public utilities 
And I think that's really a far more sane way to do things, whereas in this country, uh, Congress won't even allow won't even allow uh, Medicare to uh, use its to use its size to bargain for drug prices. So to me, what we're doing here is uh, is crazy uh, crony capitalism, just allowing uncompetitive markets to result in overly inflated drug prices. And I think, you know, it's certainly something that we need to do something about, but I don't see that really happening at any point in the near future. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I have, I have not given a lot of thought to the whole drug market pricing structure. And usually when we talk, I like to have come in with some sort of substance or background on stuff. Um, well, I, uh, so I know, I know. so I'm, I'm entering this conversation with that caveat. Sure. Uh, and and that is, look, the solution for him uh, getting a, a product and, and overpricing it is competition. It's to have a competitor come in and say, no, we'll we'll sell this to you much cheaper. Uh, evidently, whoever had it before was comfortable uh, charging thirteen dollars a right. pill for it. Uh, there would likely be uh, another competitor who come who could come in and all right, maybe he wants to charge fifteen dollars a pill uh, for something similar. Uh, and could absolutely kill this guy on volume and, right. and wipe and, him out in short term. And, and there's the problem. Now, there's, now, it gets, now it gets trickier because there are things, intellectual property things and patent things and all that uh, that go into this. And and that's another part of the equation because the people who do spend the time, money, and effort developing these ought to get a, a you know bigger share, yeah. lion's share of, of the profits. And, and there are so, – Go ahead. That's, those are my general comments, and, and otherwise, I, like I said, I, I don't want to jump in and talk a whole lot about something that's complicated that I haven't really looked at that sure. much. Uh, just a couple of points that I'll make uh, is that there are two, I think, really important ways that the market for drugs is different than the market for, say, uh, pens or basketballs or personal computers or something like that. One is that consumers don't really have those kind of choices. I mean, I, well, I can choose to buy a the, buy a certain a PC or a Mac or something like that, and either way, it's not like I'm going to die if I don't. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big difference right there is that the consumers can't necessarily do a take it or leave it. Say, well, I'll just won't buy it and I'll die. Okay, well, that's my not, consumer not, choice. No, not in, not in every case, right. but in, in many cases. In many in cases. Many cases. And, I mean, for example, I mean, there, and you can just – you know, turn on TV and, and you will see uh, four or five different uh, uh, competing uh, things for in some for, cases. Yeah, absolutely. For, you know, whatever cholesterol lowering, lowering drugs, high blood pressure drugs, um, you know, any of these things. Now, again, when you're talking about something that is a, a very much a specialty type thing, and this this had to do with dealing with with AIDS complications, mm-hmm. um that's it's, where you run into problems. Yeah, and I think well, the, the light goes into and a also second. part of that is is the market problem because the the market that you're you're selling to is necessarily small. Right, right. Now I think there, there are there are millions, if not billions, of people. I mean, certainly probably hundreds of millions in the United States who have whatever high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, those sort of things. So there is an economy of scale for the manufacturer. Absolutely. Yeah, that you may not have with a a very small specialized. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I think a second problem that I see is uh, relates to uh, the, the barriers to entry. Uh, if you want to create another drug to compete with 
whatever, some drug that's $750 a pill and you want to, that's, that's a pretty long and involved process thanks to, and well, in part the FDA, they want to make sure that what you're selling is, is safe and effective and that can cost an awful lot of money. And so most companies just feel that it's not going to be worth it because if they do come to market and spend all that money, well, then what's to prevent that first company from just lowering their price to compete and then all of a sudden they've blown maybe a billion dollars. And so that's why I think you're right, Jay, that there are some instances where the drug, the market for pharmaceutical drugs works reasonably well and is competitive. And I'm, I'm a big fan of competitive markets. I think there's no better way to get the best quality and the lowest prices through competitive markets. But when there are situations where competition, real competition is difficult, I think that's when there's a legitimate role for government. And I see a legitimate role here. Well, and here's where I I would step in and I would say, listen, yeah, maybe the market doesn't, doesn't work perfectly in that case. uh, And you need to iron out the bumps. Uh, You know, I think, I mean, that's something we we can both agree on that. Look, sooner or later, the market always works. Well, I'll, you know what I'll, I mean? no, let's put it this way. Gra- gravity I'll, always wins. I'll disagree uh, with that. I'll with say the, that the, markets the, work the most fall of the time. may be hard. Okay. So it's a matter of, of evening out the, the correction. Um, and uh, I think there's, there's probably a better way to do that than, than government price controls. Yeah. I, and I, that, that may be setting up things like, uh, you know, again, different, different sorts of uh, pools or, uh, even subsidizing, and look, I, I actually said that. Did you hear that? Subsidizing, subsidizing. well, yeah, this kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, certain certain types of uh, medications, research, that kind of thing. Which, which, look, you you look at and say that no, the the market really can't handle this or or can't deal with this because uh, either the the treatment itself is so prohibitively expensive, uh, or as I said, there's not the economy of scale that you would get that would make sense to, yeah. to produce it. Yeah, definitely. So in the end, we can both agree that other things being equal, markets are better than government. Right. So and I'll say that just like you said, sub, you know, subsidization, right. subsidized, yes, whatever. Yes. So it's like bizarro world today here on The Politics Guys. All right. Uh, speaking of bizarro world, uh, I mentioned that President Obama seems to be engaging in some interesting extracurricular activities. As many people may have heard or seen, actually, on Thursday night, he appeared in an episode of the uh, reality show Running Wild with Bear Grylls. Where, uh, I, I missed it. You I know, missed it. I I, I'm gonna have to and catch I, that. I, I, yeah. I watch the show fairly often. My my wife and kids really like it. But I'm told he actually did not drink his own urine, which was okay. a disappointment. There was apparently a petition on the White House site. You can put a anyone can put a petition up <laughs> the, suggesting that the President Obama really should drink his own urine on this show. And uh, even though there were Log, number, logging on now, you know. <laughs> Even though there were a number of signatures, mm-hmm. apparently he decided against uh, against drinking his own urine, and so I'm not sure really what to make of that. But uh, also, I guess he uh, interesting that uh, Mr. Mr. Grills Grills, I think that's his name, right. right? Bear. I just think of him as Bear, I guess, because why right. wouldn't you? Uh, I guess he's an evangelical Christian, which is certainly not in President Obama's main demographic no. there. But but they uh, they talked and they prayed and they ate. Uh, I don't know, wild stuff that was caught and so forth. So apparently a good time was had by all. Mm-hmm. President Obama yeah, I, started I a fire. I didn't see it. I just sort of wish I did. But I'm going to have to check it out. I, yeah. I can't imagine that this this actually really happened in reality. And I'm not sure what all they what they did. I mean, 
you know, did they just go through like a little hike in a in a park with like Secret Service? Well, it, it, it was in Alaska. You know, not yeah. far along, and yeah, he... uh, I'd imagine you know checking the whatever uh, you know snake or bugs or something that they killed to eat. Um, I, you know. Yeah, I think it was sort of there were certain certain difficulties involved, given that you can't just throw the president out in the wilderness and you know see if he survives. Uh, that's not really how we do things in this country. It's probably a a good thing, even though there are probably some uh, there are probably some people out there who say that's exactly what should be done with President Obama, as people felt that way. I'm, about. I'm telling you, Ronald Reagan would would survive. He would have been fine. Would have Teddy Roosevelt would have kicked oh, ass. Oh, Teddy Roosevelt, that, yeah, absolutely. Kind of absolutely. Um, President Obama seems more like a city guy to me, really, yeah, than, a, yeah. than a wilderness sort of guy, I think. But but apparently he did just fine. So you were mentioned about things that don't seem real. That reminds me of a story or that, that you mentioned earlier in the week, something about a poll uh, about uh, Republicans wanting to bomb some country. Right. Now the, there was a, a poll, and, and I, I'll, I'll do the, also the follow-up to it, but – of uh, supposedly saying that uh, 30% of Republicans polled would like to see uh, the U.S. bomb Agraba, um, which is the Agraba, which is the fictional uh, city uh, <laughs> in which uh, Aladdin and uh, right, okay. Jasmine uh, live and all that. Um, oh, yeah, I'm for that. I, Definitely. I would say I, I support those Republicans. Um <laughs> no. Well, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a goofy story, but this is not really a surprising poll result. I mean, pollsters. It's, it's not, and, and, there, and there was also, I guess, then the the media only focused on the thirty percent of Republicans. It was actually then uh, something akin to thirty percent of, of all respondents. Yeah, uh, said they'd be happy bombing Agraba. Well, and, um, and it's, so it, it's more just a yeah a, a geography quiz. Yeah, and so it, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's played as a republic. Look how stupid Republicans are. But honestly, this has been done by previous pollsters on a lot of things. We're polling about a fictional thing, and you tend to get like twenty to thirty percent of people who say whatever to something fictional because people aren't really paying that much attention, and pollsters tend to push them for an answer, and so yeah, and they give an answer. Get, you want to get yeah. off the phone, and you're in the exactly. middle of dinner, and the kids are yelling, and yeah. That's... So say, yeah, bomb it. Sure, I think that's a swell idea. So it's, yeah. not, it's not really that big idea. It's kind of a funny thing and so forth, but it really doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. So I think, though, I think, though, that there probably won't be any bombing campaigns against, what's it called again? Agrabah. See, this is although the problem. again, if they they've got they've got a genie who can like do absolutely anything and you know at the snap of a finger, so I think that would be of some concern. See, I guess this is the problem with you know not having not having kids. We have dogs, but not kids. Is I'm really not up on right. these on these Disney places and so forth. But I you know it'd be interesting to see how that poll broke down between families who had kids and not, because I would imagine that you know more of the kid families would probably actually know that Agrabah was a fictional right. Disney sort of place. So but maybe they wanted yeah. to bomb it anyway. I don't know. Exactly. Or or because of that. Yeah, exactly because of that, right. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of The Politics Guys. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys feature or just any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week and where you can comment too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Check it out and maybe give us a like. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute or two to rate the show and write a quick review. 
The Politics Guys will be off next Sunday, but in place of our regular show, we'll be posting the inaugural episode of Ask the Politics Guys. Give it a listen. And, we, we, and, and Mike, will we be, can I say this, will we be, I will be celebrating Christmas and you can celebrate whatever the hell it is. That, yeah, that, I celebrate know, Christmas. Absolutely. It's a totally secular holiday uh, holiday okay. these days, so I'm perfectly fine with it. Anyway, so right. check out the uh, Ask the Politics guys. Let us know what you think. And if you have any questions for future episodes, you can email them to us at politicsguys at gmail.com. So we'll be back with our next regular show and our first show of 2016 on Sunday, January 3rd. We hope you'll join us.